Okay, turn to John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. It's our text this morning. This is just a little three-verse snippet from the, the life of Jesus. And it's easy to read right over it. But that's, that's what we're, we're going to push in the opposite direction this morning. We're going to look deeply into what happens here in these verses and how they connect to what we've been talking about for two weeks. Because they're shot through with the imagery of the Exodus and they're so important. It's so important to understand the context here so that we get all of what Jesus is saying. And this will wrap up our series on the waters of Meribah. So John 7, starting in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is God's word. So that's it, just this one little moment. But I want to start by reminding you of, of what we've looked at for the last two weeks so that when we dig into this, it's going to all become clear how it ties together. So first of all, two weeks ago, we looked at Numbers chapter 20. And this, was the, this is what I read to the kids this morning in the children's message. And we looked at the fact that God doesn't, when he meets our material needs, our physical needs of this life, he does that. He meets our physical and our material needs, but he also, at the same time, he, do, he meets those needs in a way where he's providing for our spiritual life as well. We don't only need water. We need water that will change our hearts. Do you remember? We need water that will feed us and nourish us and refresh us spiritually as well. And Moses was supposed to, he was supposed to remind the people of their salvation, and he didn't, and he failed, and that's why he was kept out of the promised land. <laughs> then we, last week, we went to Psalm 95, where God himself says to the people, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. And we looked at the fact that to harden your heart is to turn away from the gospel in search of other saviors. In a word, to harden your heart is unbelief. That was the theme of last week's message because that's the theme of Psalm 95, where we were. Now, Jesus, in his lifetime, what was the thing that he, that he found that was wrong with his own people, the Jewish people? What was he always talking about and preaching against and urging people to come out of in his lifetime? Do you remember? Hard hearts, the same thing that Psalm 95 was talking about, unbelief, unbelief. Everywhere Jesus looked, he saw an Israel that was, that was just dried up. It was, a, it was a spiritual wasteland. It was lifeless. It was full of unbelief. Now, this is a thing that when, when you read 90, Psalm 95 in this context, you realize that what Jesus saw was something that only he could see. He had the spiritual eyes to see what was true about his own people, which is that they don't believe 
in their Messiah. He's standing right in front of them and they don't believe. So he was always talking to them about their unbelief and they were always responding to him for the most part with hard hearts. So right off the bat, we see that the theme that goes all the way back, this, the Meribah happened, the Exodus happened some 1,300 years before Jesus. So going all the way back over 1,000 years, the theme of the hardness of heart, the unbelief of the people, it has never gone away. The symptoms of unbelief have persisted right up until the days of Jesus. And that's where he is in this story. And so Psalm 95 was a song to remind the people about their salvation because as we, as we talked about last week, we are always forgetting what God has done for us. And we need, we need those reminders. And that's what Psalm 95 was. It was a rehearsal of God's salvation and what he had already done. So here Jesus is. He's on the scene. He is well aware. He knows his history. He's well aware of where these people came from. He's well aware of what this feast means to them and the themes that it carries and the, the, uh, the meaning that it delivers and all of the things that come up in the Jewish heart when they're at this feast. And we're gonna get into that. And now Jesus is ready. He's ready to speak again to the hard-hearted people of Israel. He's gonna do this by taking, he, he's gonna take this story that's 1,300 years old, this ancient story, and he's gonna pull on it and, and make it about them right here in the moment. And if they listened, their hearts would be broken and they would begin to flow with life. And that's what we're looking at here. So first of all, well, you'll see your outline there. We just, it's three verses, so it breaks down easily into uh, the rock, the river, and the spirit. And that's what we're gonna look at. So first of all, the rock, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day. And we can stop there because we need to talk about what day it was. It tells us what day we could even possibly reverse engineer this and figure out what day of the week it was. But this was the great day of the feast. What feast is that? Well, if you look at the beginning of the chapter, chap chapter 7, it says uh, the, in verse 2, now the Jews, the Feast of Booths was at hand. Has everyone ever heard? Has anyone ever heard of the Feast of Booths? How about the Feast of Tabernacles? Does that sound familiar? Same thing. They're, they're the same thing. They're just two different words. And booth just means, uh, it's just a type of tent. And that's where he was. He was at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's in, in Hebrew, it was known as Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T, Sukkot. And that's where he was. And so let's talk about this feast a little bit. This is, if you want to think about it this way, you could think of it as the camping festival. This is a great national camp out of uh, every year of the nation of Israel. The Jewish people would all, they were, this is one of three feasts that God had told them, go to Jerusalem for this one. It was a Passover. Um, I think it was first fruits. I don't remember the other one, but the, the third one was the Feast of Tabernacles. It came in the fall. It actually, this is a great time to be talking about this because it, it's September 17th and it was right this time of year when this feast would have been. And their climate is very similar to our climate. And today's an abnormal September day, but usually, you know, it would be hot and dry. And it would have been hot and dry in Israel at this time in Jerusalem. 
and they're camped out because God told them, go to Jerusalem, sleep outside, make yourself a little booth. They would take sticks, they would take branches and leaves and make a little enclosure and you would have hundreds of thousands of people sleeping like this in these little booths that they made in the streets, in the alleys, in the backyards of Jerusalem. And so you have all these extra people. And it was also, you need to know, it was also the feast that was everyone's favorite. This was everybody's favorite because there was great joy in this feast. In fact, in Leviticus 23, 40, God commands Israel when he's telling them, he's giving them instructions about this feast. He says to rejoice before me for seven days. It's the only time, it's the only feast where God ever said, rejoice before me. All of the other feasts had a solemn element, and this one did too. But Passover, for example, it's a very solemn occasion. And the meal that they ate wasn't a meal of rejoicing so much as a meal of remembering their sin and and the sacrifice of the lamb. So this, this feast, this was a joyful occasion. It came at the end of the harvest season which if you've ever grown anything, you know that the best part of growing something is eating what it grew, right? And so after the grape harvest, the vintage, in late summer came this occasion, and it was a celebration that God had provided food for them. And it was also a looking back to the time when they didn't have land to grow food on. And it was a remembrance of, listen, we have a harvest because God brought us in from the wilderness to a place where these things grow. Remember where you came from. Remember the wilderness in which you once walked and rejoice that you have a vineyard. Rejoice that you have an olive orchard. Rejoice in these things. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was. It was a, it was a party. There was a rabbi who wrote at some point, a historian who said, like, you've never known joy unless you've been to the Feast of Tabernacles. It was that important to these people. And it happened in the early fall when it was still hot and still dry. And so as part of the Feast of Tabernacles, there was an actual, every morning there was a ritual. They did every day. And there were lots of other things happening, just like any any, uh, religious festival. But this one was important and everyone, not everybody would fit, but thousands of people would, would cram into the courtyard of the temple. The priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam, which wasn't far. It was maybe... It was maybe a quarter mile away from the temple, carrying, there would be music and they would carry this golden pitcher and they'd go down to the the pool of Siloam, which was fed by a spring. And they would dip that pitcher in and carry that water back all the way to the temple and they would pour it out at the altar. There was a water ceremony. And it was really, it was really a prayer for rain. Because if you, if you know, I mean, we had, rain, we had significant rain last month here in Fallbrook, but usually this time of year, it hasn't rained for like six or seven months. And it would be the same in Israel. It'd be, it'd be a long time since the last rain. Things are getting dry. Their water storage is starting to run out, right? They need rain. They need rain right away so that their crops, next year's crops would begin to grow as well. So it was a prayer for rain, but it, also, it was also supposed to make them think about the time when they were in the desert and the people were thirsty. They would personally have been thirsty standing here watching this and they would have seen water being poured out on the ground and realized God had once done that for our people at the, at the uh, rock of Meribah. 
And those were all of the, those were all of the associations that a Jewish person would have watching this thing unfold. Now, there, was, there were also a couple of readings that you need to know about. One was Zechariah 14, and the other was Ezekiel 47. We're actually going to come back to the Ezekiel passage later. But together, those, those passages depict water pouring out from the temple. There's a prophecy that water would pour out of the temple. And what is that about? Because there's no, there's no spring, there's no fountain inside the temple. In order to have water at the temple, they had to go get it somewhere else and bring it to the temple and pour it out or drink it or use it in their ceremonies. And so there's these prophecies about water pouring out of the temple, pouring out of Jerusalem and bringing life to the world. And these were scriptures that were read during this feast as well. Okay, so as the priests came back with the water and they poured it out at the altar, there would have been a moment of silence. This was a noisy feast. There was lots of singing and rejoicing and lots of opportunities to shout. They would all shout together and wave their, their, their palm branches. But there would be a moment of silence when the priest poured out the water. And that is the moment that Jesus chooses to stand up and say something. And it says that Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, what's wrong with just that statement? Jesus stood up and cried out. Does anyone, does anyone feel it? Something wrong with that? What is it? Do you remember, do you remember where it says, this is, it's mentioned in Matthew, but it comes from Isaiah 42. God said that my servant, the Messiah, when he comes, he's not going to be one to call attention to himself. And it says that he wouldn't raise his voice or cry aloud in the streets. And yet we find Jesus doing exactly what God said his servant wouldn't do. So this is uncharacteristic for Jesus. This is what it means. The, the prophecy that, that the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, would be would not call attention to himself. It means that his ministry wouldn't be characterized by calling attention to himself. And that is true because if you think about, if you think about Jesus, he was almost always trying to get away from crowds of people, wasn't he? He fed thousands of people up on the mountainside. Um, it's, I, it's just a chapter or two before this. Um, in Galilee, around the Lake of Galilee, thousands of people fed them, made them very happy, And then what did he do? He walked on water to get away from them. That's what he did. Go read it. That's exactly what he did. He left them behind to go somewhere else where there weren't as many people. And so he's always doing this. He's telling people, he's healing someone and saying, now don't say anything, right? He is, he's leaving the crowds behind. He's leaving the place where he might be able to build his platform, right? His political platform, get his engage his followers. No, he's going and he's going around the corner and he's talking to the homeless guy or the disabled person or the blind person or the beggar or the Pharisee or the tax collector. He's always doing this. He's doing the things that don't call attention to him because he wants to have real encounters with people. He's not a, he's not a politician. He's not a stump speech guy. So he doesn't do this very often. When he does, it's very significant. 
So if you hear Jesus standing up in the middle of a quiet moment and interrupting everything to call attention to himself, you should really listen to what he's about to say because it's something that's very important. And so he does this. He does this. And listen to what he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Imagine Jesus standing up in the middle of the temple courtyard near, near the altar. A lot of these people probably had seen him before and they kind of knew who he was. He, they, they knew he was a controversial figure. And he stands up while the priest is doing this and he disrupts the entire thing to say, come to me and drink. What a thing, what a thing to do. I mean, this is beyond the decorum of just any old church service. And there are thousands of people there watching it. And he shouts and he cries, come to me if you're thirsty. And this is one, this is, this is a, this is an ancient picture right here that we're seeing. Jesus is standing up like Moses in front of the people gathered together as one big thirsty church. And he's saying, if you're thirsty, come to me. And these people who were there in Jerusalem that day, they had come to the temple to watch the water being poured out. And 1,300 years earlier, the people had come together for the same thing to watch the water pour out of the rock. And Jesus is looking at these people and he's thinking of the people in Israel or in, in Sinai all those hundreds of years before. He's looking at these people. He's thinking of that generation and what he, what he sees, he sees what's in their hearts. He knows, he knows that they need life. He knows they're dried up inside. He sees Israel as a spiritual wasteland, a desert, a wilderness. And Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. He's raising his voice in the wilderness that was Jerusalem and says, come and drink. Now, when you understand everything that this ritual meant to the Jewish people, when you understand that it has these connections to to the Feast of Tabernacles and going all the way back to the Exodus, you realize what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I'm the rock of Moses and, and I'm your new Moses. He's saying, I'm the reality that this ceremony has always been pointing to. I'm the true thing. And that has always been a shadow. And I'm standing here before you now and I'm saying, come and get a drink. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's your first Fill in the blank there in your notes if you're following along. Jesus is the rock who waters his people in the wasteland. Jesus is the rock who waters his people in the wasteland. If you remember last week, we concluded with a little, a little line from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Do you remember that? We were, we were looking at 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. And Paul writes this. He says, all those people, he says, 
that our, our fathers, they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Paul saw it and it's exactly what Jesus was saying about himself. He's saying, I'm the rock where you can come and get a drink if you're thirsty and I know you're thirsty. That's what Jesus was saying. This was the claim that he was making. Do you understand what a big deal this was? This wasn't, he wasn't just saying, yeah, or as long as we're on the topic of water, I got some. He's saying, I'm the rock. This symbol has been waiting for 1,300 years to be fulfilled in me, and I'm standing in front of you. Come and get it. That's what Jesus is saying. And Paul says the same thing, and that's how we know exactly what was in Jesus' mind when he's saying this. Now, this takes us to our second section, because Jesus is the rock. It's clear. It's clear as day what he's claiming here. Now, verse 38, let's look at the river. What does it mean to drink from Christ? You see that in verse 37? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So he's saying something spiritual here, and it sounds super spiritual. Come to me and drink. But what does he mean? What does it actually mean to drink from Jesus? What does that mean? Well, he says it in the very next verse. He says, whoever believes in me. That's what it means to drink from Christ, to put your faith in him, to believe that he is the source of life. That's what it means to come to him and drink that you get your life from him. And then what? And then what? After we have a drink, obviously your thirst is quenched. You get what you need from Jesus. But is that all? Is there anything else? Well, yes, in fact, there is something very important after that. And it's there in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water out of his heart who believes will flow rivers of living water. So yes, after you get your drink and your thirst goes away, that's not the end. There is something else that happens. You become a source of what Jesus calls living water. Now, what is living water? What is living water? It's a kind of vague, spiritual-sounding term, so let's unpack what living water meant. This is actually a beautiful picture of the way that ancient people thought about their world and saw the elements in their world. Because water that's trapped in a container, is it moving? Is it making any noise? No, water that's, the water that's, that's contained... It's still, it's not, what you would, it's not what you would call alive. That water is, is, is lifeless. But water can also dance over stones, can it? It can move. It can sing. It has a life of its own when it's flowing. And that's what living water was. Living water was flowing water. It was water that was coming out of a source 
And so it was moving. Do you see it? That's what living water was. It was, it was flowing water. And this is, this is important because this is important because it, in, it, every house would have had a cistern because they didn't have F-Pud to tear their streets up like we do. <laughs> I'm sorry, I say tear our streets up. I meant provide running water. I, indoor plumbing is great, right? We can agree on that. Every house would have a cistern. In fact, right here in this climate, before water districts, every house had a cistern because you would capture rainwater and that's the water that you would live on. You'd water your plants, you'd water your animals with that. Every house had a cistern, but water in a cistern, if you, does anyone have rain barrels at their house? What happens to that water after about six months? How does it look? Not great. It's not living, right? Actually, it is living with the wrong things. It's alive in the wrong way, right? But living water, water that's flowing from a source, from a spring, it's clean and pure. Not like water that's collected in a cistern because that came off the roof or it came off the street and it's, it's polluted. Living, flowing water is clean and it's pure. And because it was pure, this was actually water that was used for purification in Israel had to come from a source of living water. It had to come from a river or a spring or some other source. That was, it was, living water was necessary for purification. That's why John baptized in the Jordan River because it had to be this living water. Another thing that's extremely important about living water is that only God can provide it. Only God can provide living water. Men can go off, they can... They can dig a well or build a cistern, but only God can bring water up from the deep to flow over the land. He's the only one who does that. And then the last thing about living water is that it was just a profound blessing of life to a community in arid climates like ours, like Israel. In fact, it's not too much to say that wherever you looked before, before modern plumbing, in a climate like this, wherever you found a lot of people, you found a water source. Because otherwise you had to walk 10 miles with your water, right? So communities depended on this living water. A spring meant life, okay? This actually reminded me, uh, back, back in my reporting days, back before I had kids, um, in July 2007, I was invited to go down to this really secret little tributary of the Santa Margarita. And it was secret because it's called Stone Creek. Now it's secrets out. Um, <clears throat> but it's a secret because it's actually so pure that scientists can go there. It's actually, it's just right on the backside of Red Mountain. It's not very big. It's just a little stream. It feeds into the Santa Margarita Right, it's on the property that San Diego State University owns down there in the River Valley, and it's it's so pure that scientists can go there and establish their benchmark against which all of the other rivers in Southern California are measured. That's how pure it is. Yeah, right here in Fallbrook. Um, and the reason it's still that pure is because it begins its source is on the this preserve and it flows straight into the river, so there's no source of pollution anywhere nearby. And this is the, but this is the thing we're talking about. When we think of living water, it's clean, it's drinkable, 
You could use it for a bath. It flows, it has life, and it brings life to the people that it flows near. In summary, living water was the best kind of water. It was reliable, it was pure, and it was provided by God himself. Now with that in mind, look at this again. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You don't just come to Jesus to get your thirst quenched. When you do that, something else happens. And that's your second fill in the blank there. Jesus turns the sinner's dead heart of stone into a spring of life. Jesus turns the dead heart of stone into a spring of life. Notice that Jesus says two things will happen when you come to him. When you come to him in faith, he says, in the, when we're telling the story of water in Israel, two things, two things are true. You come to Jesus and you get a drink. That much is true. And it's immediate and it's, it's urgent and it meets your immediate need. It's why so many people will walk through the doors of a church when their life is falling apart because you need a drink. And that's true and you get that. But notice that it's not, Jesus doesn't talk about that like it's the ultimate goal of coming to him. Do you see that? Jesus says you get your drink and something else happens. You become a source of life to the people around you. So Christianity is not just about having your needs met. Christianity is also about becoming a source of life for the people who are nearby. The idea here is that when you believe in Jesus, when you have faith in Jesus, that faith will turn the hardest heart into a fountain of life so that everyone who receives life from Jesus also becomes a source of that same life. This is so important because don't you want that? Don't you want to be a part of that in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace? This is part of what we get from Jesus. We get our needs met and through us begin to be a part of the, the meeting of other people's needs around us. Now, one thing we need to say about this before we move on. How is this true, by the way? We get our drink from Jesus. How is it that he can turn us into sources of life? How is that possible? Think about the story. The answer is in the story of the rock. What needed to happen to the rock before the people could drink? What had to happen to it? It had to be broken. Do you see that? It had to be split for the people to drink. The rock has to be broken for the people to have their drink. And Jesus took that fatal blow on the cross for us. Do you remember what happened after he died? He was still on the cross. But to make sure, what did they do? Took a spear and they pierced him. And what came out? 
water and blood. Because that water flowed from within Jesus in his death, what he's saying here is that every believer becomes a rock of Meribah. Do you see it? Jesus is using the vocabulary, the language, the imagery of the Exodus to, say, to tell us something about ourselves when we believe in him, which is that we can actually be that rock for the people around us. He is our rock. He is also their rock. But the way this works is that the life flows through his people. His people are the means that Jesus uses to provide life for entire communities, for whole cities, for countries, for the world, ultimately. So Jesus says that when you believe in me, you will become clean and pure inside. And you will be a blessing of life to your community. That's what Jesus promises. That's what it means that rivers of living water will flow out of his people. And this takes us to verse 39. And it leaves us with one question, which is what is the water that he promises will flow from our hearts? What is that water? I mean, we get the idea, but what is the actual substance of the water? What is the thing itself? And now John adds a little editorial comment right here. You see this? Nobody's ever gonna forget this moment. No one who was here in the temple courtyard when this happened, watching the priests, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, hearing this man stand up and say, come to me and drink. No one was ever gonna forget that. And so John, I don't know, three, four, five decades later, he adds this editorial comment about what Jesus was saying. And that's what verse 39 is. That's John speaking now. And he says, now Jesus said this about the Spirit. He said this about the Holy Spirit. When he says rivers of water will flow from the heart of the believer, John says he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the water here. And so to complete this picture, we need to go back to one ancient prophecy and we'll finally be able to see everything that Jesus was talking about, everything that he meant by this. And that prophecy is in Ezekiel chapter 47. If you want to turn there, we'll end with this. Ezekiel is right before Daniel, and it's right immediately follows, I believe, Lamentations, yeah. 972 is the page number if you're using the Pew Bible. 872, like I said. Chapter 47, and I'll just read uh, verses 1 through 5. Now, as I read this, I want you to keep everything, everything, if you can, about this imagery of, of water and rocks and temples and hearts. Keep it all in your head while I read this. This is Ezekiel speaking now, and there's an angel. There's an angel who's giving Ezekiel a tour, and that's where we start. Verse one, then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. 
for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on us on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through. For the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. It's not only a trickle, is it? It's not just a little bit of water. It's a river. It's enough for the whole world. Jesus is talking about this prophecy too. He's talking about all of it. He's tying it all together in himself. That's what John says. He was talking about the spirit. Now I want you, by the way, the Feast of Tabernacles had connections, had very important connections to the temple. I, it, was, it was the one feast that actually had the most to do with the temple, I would say. Because the tabernacle was the place where God dwelled with us, right? It was the place where God's presence was. And the tabernacle became the temple. And the temple was God's, it was God's booth. It was God's tent on earth, right? It was the place where God lived. The, the original temple of Solomon was dedicated on the Feast of Booths. That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And when the people came back from exile, the story of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the temple. The second temple was dedicated on the Feast of Booths. Then the temple was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes in like the second or third century BC. The temple was cleansed and it was rededicated. Any guess when? On the Feast of Booths. It had everything to do with the temple. It had a lot to do with water. It had to do with the spirit. They didn't understand how it all fit together, but it did. And Jesus is teaching us exactly how it fits together. Now, inside the temple, what was the most holy place? What was it for? What did it represent? What was the most holy place? The holiest of holies. The dwelling place of God. The very presence of God. It was the innermost sanctum of the temple. It was the place where God's very presence lived. And for that reason, it was unspeakably holy. And what was torn inside the temple in the moment when Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross? What was torn? The veil, the curtain. You starting to see it? When Jesus, who was the true rock and the true temple, was broken on the cross, that veil was split just like the rock at Meribah. And what began to come out? What does it say in Ezekiel? Put it together here. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came out of the temple when Jesus died, when the rock was broken on the cross. The same way that the water came out of the rock at Meribah. This, may, this means 
that the rehearsals were over and the real thing was being poured out. And all of it, all of it had always been pointing to Jesus. From Pharaoh to the Exodus to Meribah to the Psalms, all of it was about Jesus. Spiritually, what this means is, I know this is a lot of imagery to take in, but in Egypt, you had a rock and it was broken and water came out. And in Jesus on the cross, we see the true rock broken and water comes out. And then when we turn to the temple, we see that the veil inside the temple that was holding in the water, because water in the Old Testament meant the Holy Spirit, it's broken and the Spirit comes out. Do you see? It's a picture of what God did for the Israelites 1,300 years before. So the temple was the rock in this spiritual wasteland of a world. And when it was split open, it began to flow with life for everybody. And they would have understood, a Jewish mind would have understood that the Spirit, when the Spirit is finally released, when it finally comes among us and fills us, it would be coming from the temple. So when the veil was torn, that was the moment that the Holy Spirit came out of the temple to us. So the Spirit would become, Jesus is saying, and what John is saying about what Jesus is saying, is that the Spirit, this Holy Spirit of God, would become in our hearts, in the hearts of believers, a strange and a powerful and a beautiful kind of life, overflowing like a spring, like a river, season after season, refreshing and purifying and watering this parched spiritual wilderness where we live. Jesus is saying he's going to turn that wilderness back into a garden. He's going to send his people all through the world, watering and bringing life wherever they go. And that, that is the work. That is the work that God has given to us. When you come to Jesus and drink, you take your place in the story of how God is saving the world one thirsty soul at a time. Let's pray.